0: Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together as your men, your men that you want us to become, the men that you want us to be, and we now surrender ourselves to your will. We ask you to pour your spirit upon us now as we look into the concept of spiritual leadership and how that we are all called to be spiritual leaders, no matter who we are, no matter what we are supposed to do. And so open our eyes, open our ears to your word and to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So when we think of spiritual leaders, I'm sure lots of people come to mind. You've got Pastor Richard, Pastor Barney, Pastor Ray, Chuck Smith, Billy Graham, Greg and many others who wear that same mantle. But what exactly is a spiritual leader? It's a pretty good question. How does one become a spiritual leader? We can't let the world decide for us what leadership really is. Because these preconceived notions tend to get in the way. Because sometimes, even look at Christ himself, the world would look at him and say, well, he wasn't really a spiritual leader at all. He wasn't a leader. He didn't have leadership skills. And if we read in the chapter, we find that Sanders is very good at explaining this. Many people regard leaders as naturally gifted with intellect, personal forcefulness, and enthusiasm. Such qualities certainly enhance leadership potential, but they do not define spiritual leadership. True leaders must be willing to suffer for the sake of objectives great enough to demand their wholehearted obedience. Now fortunately through the course of this of these, uh, the, the series of studies we're going to be looking at the true answers to these questions about spiritual leadership and we're going to find that we are all called to be spiritual leaders in one capacity or another. But to go there, we have to go back to our source. You see, even though I listed some people that are acknowledged as spiritual leaders there's only really one true role model for spiritual leadership and that would be Jesus, exactly. Because he was the perfect spiritual leader. Think about it. He took 12 men from totally different backgrounds. Some, or no, none of them had real religious education or experience. Um, some had some business experience. They were fishermen. Um, some of them were not exactly entirely honest. Think about our tax collector, Matthew. Matthew. And others had egos and hot tempers. Peter, for example, had an ego probably bigger than the Sea of Galilee. But after three years of spending that time with Jesus, and with the exception of Judas Iscariot, we'll just leave him aside for the moment, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we read about in the first part of the book of Acts, these were men who turned the world upside down. And yet, if we look at how Jesus worked with these guys, it has, looks like nothing that modern leadership theory would be. See, for example, Jesus was not a manager. When he called the 12 together, it was not for some type of organizational brainstorming meeting. He didn't sit there and say... <clears throat> okay gentlemen welcome to the gospel incorporated today we are going to organize you into an effective team which we will call team gospel whose simple vision is to save the world first of all you peter you're going to be the ceo you will be responsible to me for the effective operation of The Gospel Incorporated. You will be expected to speak our message to the world, as well as coordinating all outreaches and events. Everyone else on the team will do report directly to you. You will also prepare a mission statement. We will be utilizing your business background and we'll come up with a catchy corporate logo that we can get out to the general public as quickly as possible. Now, James... You will be Chief Operating Officer dealing with the day-to-day operations of the Gospel Incorporated. All company correspondence will go directly to you to be distributed to all different departments as needed. You will also come up with a set of bylaws and procedures that will allow us to operate as efficiently and professionally as possible like a well-oiled machine. Make sure you come up with a dress code that will project the proper image to the public in as wide a demographic audience as possible. We can't please everybody, but we need to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. After all, our vision is to save the world. John, because you're going to outlive everyone else in this group, you will be the chief archival and information officer. It will be your job to make press releases and conduct press conferences on a regular basis to keep the public informed as well as archiving all sermons and miracles for the benefit of future generations as well as providing copies of these materials for distribution worldwide. Judas Iscariot, you will be the chief financial officer. One set of books now. You will need to organize fundraisers at our various venues in order to meet operating expenses. You will also need to contact wealthy donors among the population, preferably Jews, but do not reject donations from interested Gentiles. You will also handle merchandising and other revenue sources. Uh, Just don't set up any vending booths in the temple. After all, it is supposed to be a house of prayer. Andrew You will be the chief marketing officer. Your job will be to go into whatever new town or region that we'll be expanding into, checking out the demographics of the population and reporting back so that our outreach efforts are much more impactful. Have Philip and Thaddeus help you conduct focus groups and general man-on-the-street interviews to assist you in mining this data. Matthew, you will be our liaison with the Roman government since you are well known to them through your position in the Internal Revenue Service. Specifically, making sure that we have the permits for outdoor meetings and the like. We will be handling our own security, so they won't need to detail any of their people. You will also handle any tax questions. We will be organized as a 503C nonprofit, so you will need to follow up on all the required paperwork. Simon, As a zealot, you will appeal to the younger generation of Jews. You'll be working as our publicist, specifically aiming for the 18 to 25-year-old demographic. Your job is to present the Gospel Inc. as hip and cool, and the current Jewish religious establishment as irrelevant to youth. If we can recruit some young musicians to perform worship concerts, so the, the better. Now, Thomas, haven't forgotten you. You'll be analyzing all sermons for effectiveness. You'll be working closely with Bartholomew and James Altheason. Who will be sampling audience reaction and will report directly to me as to maintaining audience interest and relevance in order to more closely fine tune the effectiveness of our sermons. Now, each sermon needs to hit the target dead on in order to harvest the number of necessary the number necessary to reach our quota in save souls. Any questions? Okay, good. Okay, guys, just remember our vision statement to save the world. That's what we are here for. That is our driving passion. Now keep in mind at all times that this is your life now. You belong to me. Your dedication and commitment will be rewarded as the Gospel Incorporated grows and expands into new markets. However, if you don't think you can hang, if you don't do your job, remember that your replacement will. Go Team Gospel! (laughs) Well... I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who would hardly agree with this approach, but this is not how Jesus worked his operation. In fact, it's really interesting to note that he never organized anything. He regularly encouraged people to stop following him, and ultimately he saw his death as the pinnacle of his accomplishments. Now, how is this leadership Well, spiritual leadership is a totally different beast. It's not interested in power or numbers or demographics or stuff like that. A spiritual leader wants to lead and to encourage others in their own walk with God. A spiritual leader wants to help others discover their own spiritual gifts and their place in God's ministry. A spiritual leader is interested in the transformation of lives through the saving blood of Christ, not in the number of people saved. A spiritual leader leads, not because of a position they hold, such as pastor or elder, but because the Spirit works through them. Not merely directing or instructing, but influencing and inspiring with the Lord the focus of it all. That is true leadership. And this kind of ties in nicely with our previous set of studies on discipleship, simply because in order to be an effective spiritual leader, you have to be and you have to continue to be a servant of the Lord. The two are inseparable. There's no way around it. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, we see an excellent discussion of this concept. Now we're going to be starting in verse 3. And you can follow along, but for the the sake of clarity, I'm going to be reading this out of the New Living Translation. I kind of like the way it flows better. So we're going to start at verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So verses 3 and 4 pretty clear. I actually have a poster of this in my classroom at school. They talk about self-esteem and how to make people feel better about themselves. Well, okay, here's your first step. Think of others as more important as yourself. Okay? Now, how does this apply to leadership? Now, let's read on, starting in verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. There we go. The, the, the source of our inspiration for leadership, Christ himself. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And there's our key word right there, obedience. In particular, obedience to God. Now this may sound like servant talk, but remember that Jesus is our example. And he freely admitted that he was under the authority of the Father at all times. He prayed often, and his words spoke his submission to God's direction. In that real stressful time in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was about to be arrested, about to be flogged, tried, and executed, what was his words? Not my will, but your will be done. In this light, we now need to first look at our motivation for leadership. As I said earlier, we are all called to be spiritual leaders on one level or another. Now whether it's to be just the spiritual leader of our family or maybe to lead a church at some point, we still have to take our cue from Jesus who demonstrated his idea of leadership by washing the disciples' feet, which was, as we've heard many times, the job of the lowest servant in the household. He told the disciples in no uncertain terms what true leadership is about. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 20. And we'll be starting in verse 20. This is an interesting little vignette here. Right before the passage we're going to read, Jesus basically finally lays it on the line for his disciples. Basically, at this point, he's telling them, I'm going to... Jerusalem they are going to flog me they are going to crucify me I am going to die okay so right now he's pretty he's laid some pretty heavy news on him so in response to this news let's take a look at verse starting at verse 20 in Matthew 20 then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him and he said to her what do you wish He said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand or on my left, it's not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. Now when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Scripture indicates that James and John didn't put mom up to this. Hey, Mom, could you ask Jesus to to put us in a special location? No, Mom really had her interest of her boys in mind. However, I'm sure they were not adverse to the fact it was brought up. In fact, they were probably uh, pretty pleased that their mom managed to pop the question like this to Jesus before Peter had a chance to. Okay? What was happening here? Pride. Pride was now the motivation. We were not talking about a spiritual leadership. They were still thinking in terms of a secular leadership. James and John and their mother wanted their will in the matter, not God's will. And they wanted it their way. Now Jesus really answers this very nicely. He made it clear that he knew that their request was made out of ignorance. That's why he said, you really know what you're asking? Because they really didn't realize at that point that the path to the throne was via the cross that the path to the throne would be a difficult one. And he even said, okay, yeah, you guys are going to go through what I go through. James was the first disciple to be martyred. And John, though he did die a natural death, had to endure severe persecution and hard days on the Isle of Patmos. It just goes to show that there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. But then Jesus went on to, to address that pride that was motivating these guys. And... Not just James and John's pride, the pride of the other, other disciples, because they were they were not happy with them. They probably figured, man, they got to they asked the question before we did. In his kingdom, we must not follow the example of the world. Our example is Jesus. We should <clears throat> excuse me, not some corporate president or wealthy athlete or celebrity. He made it quite clear you need to be servants. Jesus came as a servant, and therefore it was clear that he expected his leaders to serve one another. He came to give his life, therefore we should give our lives in the service to him and to others. And as I mentioned, at this point the disciples were still thinking in human terms. And apparently this lesson never soaked in, at least not at this point, because during the Last Supper the Gospel tells us they were arguing again over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And even today many have not figured it out. It is sad to note that in today's church we have a lot of people who want to be in ministry leadership, but very few who actually want to serve. There are many who want to exercise authority, but few who want to take the towel, the basin, and go out and wash feet. Now, if you were with us up at the men's retreat, we heard a few stories about Pastor Romaine. Okay, Pastor Romaine, he's kind of a... A legend in a sense. No, he's a real guy in Calvary Chapel history. He was essentially Chuck Smith's second, you know, second hand man or second right hand man at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Um, interesting to note, he was a former Marine Corps drill instructor, which seems a little bit, you know, he's assistant pastor and a drill instructor. Hmm. The two don't kind of go together. In the case of Romaine, it did very well, even though. A lot of times he had the tact of a lug wrench. Um, He was very compassionate during counseling, but he was firmly believed in this whole concept of servanthood in leadership. And you may recall the story of the toilet incident up at uh, Twin Peaks if you were there. Uh, I won't repeat it now. If you're interested, ask somebody at dinner if you really want to talk about it. Okay? thing is that romaine was so committed to this principle that basically if anybody came to costa mesa or started going there and felt called to some type of ministry um everybody referred him to romaine okay and there was romaine they would go in there and romaine would give them the most menial jobs that were available go out and rake the leaves go out and sweep up the parking lot um Toilets need to be clean. Go do that. Vacuum the sanctuary. And if you know it was Costa Mesa, it's a huge sanctuary. Uh, to go over to the children's ministry, vacuum the classrooms, take out the trash. Whatever. Okay? Now, this is how he found out the person's true motivation, because if they were really motivated to serve, this is not even a problem. They go out and they do it. They would clean the toilets they would vacuum and they would be doing it with a cheerful heart just very thankful that they were allowed to serve the Lord in some way shape or form and as time went on Romaine would reward these guys by moving them up to more and more responsible positions of ministry many Calvary Chapel pastors had their start through Romaine in that way on the other hand if the person's motivation was more in pride like oh yeah I'm teaching material so let me teach a Bible study when they were handed the broom or the rake, it's just like, this is beneath me. What are you talking about? That person wouldn't last very long, and off they go, usually leaving Costa Mesa on their way off to someplace else that was, quote-unquote, more valued for my skills. They weren't in, interested in serving, they were just interested in being seen. Their ambition or Their ambition promoted themselves, and yet, yeah, there's another and yet here. It says in 1 Timothy 3, one. you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now this seems kind of at odds with what we've just been talking about, but really it isn't. Now, it's translated in New King James as bishop, but other translations, pastor, overseer, basically a position of spiritual leadership over a church. This is not an easy job. Now, if you read through the book, it, it does a good explanation that in Paul and Timothy's time, if you were a spiritual leader, you were number one on the hit list. Okay? If there was trouble, they went to you first. Okay? You were the one that got most of the persecution. When the time came for them to, to, to drag you off to jail or to kill you, you were the first one to go. So at the time, this was not exactly a position that a phony would want. Most phonies would say, hey, no, that's not for me. I'll just stay out here where it's safe. However, it may not be exactly like that today, but it's not too far different. But not as visible and blatant, every pastor and every pastor's family is a target for spiritual attack from the enemies. And most pastors I know have had some type of threat given to them, either frivolous lawsuits or actually death threats. Just for being a pastor. But the real dangers for leadership is a lot more subtle. Okay, Now there's a little story about a pastor who was putting up a trellis at his house. So he was out there with his hammer and nails and he had the trellis and he was pounding away and putting it up there. And a young boy walked by and he stopped for a moment just to kind of watch to see what the pastor was doing. The pastor kind of turned and said, oh hi, how's it going? Oh, hi pastor, I'm doing good. And so the pastor would go back to work doing what he was doing. But every few minutes, he kind of looked over his shoulder and noticed the kid was still standing there watching intently. And after about 15 minutes, the pastor kind of turned around and said, um, is there something I can do for you? Can I help you in some way? The kid says, no, 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 no. I just wanted to see what a pastor would say when he hit his uh, thumb with a hammer. <laughs> Though humorous, the story demonstrates an extremely important point. Any spiritual leader from the pastor on down is under a microscope being observed keenly and closely by both the church and the world. Even the most innocent events can be twisted into something totally off the wall, but yet the world's going to run with it. True story. former pastor goes into a liquor store to buy a soda. Why? It's cheaper than at the local grocery store. He comes out with it, it's a bottle a two liter bottle of squirt. That's all it was. Next thing you know, it's running wildfire throughout the community that he was sitting at the curb guzzling down a fifth of seagrams. And he couldn't even he could not even defend himself because of course you're gonna say that you weren't doing it. Well we well, you know. Well did you see me? No, no, so and so said it. And so on and so forth. Even though he didn't do anything wrong, The little spies were ready to try to take whatever he did and blow it completely out of proportion. For many with the wrong motivations of ministry, if you're faithful, God will get you through this, but if you have the wrong motivation in ministry, if you're in it for the power, for the money, and for the glory, you're basically a hypocrite. Because the Lord's not the center of your life and not the center of your leadership. As a result, you're wide open to an enemy attack. Now you may be able to fake it for a time maybe even for years but the enemy is going to exploit the cracks in that armor and the resulting disaster will come at the worst possible time not just for you personally but for your church and it brings discredit not only on the leadership but it brings discredit on the church of god in general how many of us know non-christians who use the excuse i will not go to church because they're full of a bunch of hypocrites i've heard it many times Okay, And this is where it stems from. Somebody takes their eye off the Lord, puts it on worldly things, they stumble, and the enemy just exploits it. Ambition which centers on the glory of God and welfare of the church is a mighty force for good. Now there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing your utmost for the kingdom of God so long as God gets the glory, not you. Excellence in ministry should not be a statement of your own abilities, but the greatness of our Savior, a desire to do the best for him in response to his sacrifice on the cross for us. Our motivation is to serve and to do our best in what we do. Now, how do we know if someone is called to be a leader in this way or maybe they're just a climber trying to hide out? Well, basically, we are all called to be spiritual leaders at some level. So let us address the most basic level, and if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about, the spiritual leadership of your family. For those who are a signal, at some point in your future, you may have a wife, you may have a family, that mantle now falls upon you. Now why is this important? Why is this a wonderful starting point? One of the requirements of an overseer in 1 Timothy 3 touches upon this very four, uh, this very point. Let me read you verses 4 and 5. One who wants to be an overseer, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? That's heavy. And for many of us, a lot of us at this point will say, well, that's it for me. I can't even do that. I'm out. Okay? But remember what I said from the very beginning. And this is, I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. A spiritual leader wants to lead and encourage others in their own walk with the Lord. Now you apply this to your family. A spiritual leader wants to help others discover their own spiritual gifts and their place in God's ministry. This is your own family. A spiritual leader is interested in the transformation of lives through the saving bud of Christ, not in the numbers of people saved. A spiritual leader leads, not because of a position they hold, such as husband or dad, but because the Spirit works through them. Not merely directing or instructing, but influencing and inspiring with the Lord the focus of all. Gee, that sounds easy to say. Ain't that easy, is it? The answer is no. Not in this day of age. The culture around us is trying to destroy the family unit. Actively trying to destroy it. I don't watch a lot of TV, but what I do see from time to time, you rarely see a capable husband or father depicted on most entertainment. Men are generally portrayed as idiotic bumblers, and the wife is the one who basically pulls his fat out of the fire when he does something. And if you think this through, this goes back many years. Think about the honeymooners. Think about the Flintstones. Think about those things that maybe we enjoyed as kids or saw on on reruns at night and thinking, wow, man, that's funny. But think about how men were being portrayed out for get-rich-quick schemes. Okay? Dads tend to be as as dads, quote-unquote. They seem to be irrelevant. Teens know more about things than their old man does. And then you have the fathers that are much more orthodox. Authoritative, and what happens, their roles are portrayed as that they 're dictators, and with their kids practically clicking their heels with a salute saying, "Yo voter mein Führer. and then these types of dads are soon put in their place, interesting, but that 's how the culture depicts godly men now we 're not going to go through all the ins and outs of of marriage tonight that 's not what we 're looking at. But let's look at again at what the Bible expects of us, and see how this applies to spiritual leadership. Turn to Ephesians five. This is a very familiar. Uh, if you've been to the uh, Couples Fellowship, this is a very familiar uh, passage to all of us, guys. Okay, we're starting in verse twenty-five. Basically, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and it's pretty much setting out, you know, proper behavior and proper attitudes for women, you know, husbands and wives and children and so forth. And the women, the wives are addressed previously, but in verse 25, here we go. Starting in verse 25, "...husbands, love your wives as just as Christ also loved the church." "...and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself." Okay? So once again, go, you know, we can compare this with Matthew 20. As a husband, we're not lording it over our wives, even though sometimes the joke is, yes, I'm the lord and master of my manner. Okay? Really, to be honest, that's not the way it should be. Well, yeah, you're responsible to God. You are the spiritual leader, but your wife is there at your side. Okay, you're not lording it over her. You're not exercising authority. The reason we're not doing this is because I'm the man and what I say goes. My word is law. Okay? We are trying to love our wives with honor, nurturing them in a way of the Lord. Again, going back to we are trying to lead them down the path to the Lord so they figure out what their place in ministry is as well. An effective leader who's married has a wife that's right there by his side, not fighting. I have seen too many pastors with wives who basically have this attitude, I never asked to be a pastor's wife have their ministries go down the tubes because the wife is basically backbiting them at the same time. That's going to happen perhaps, but the thing is your job is to bring her up alongside you as that spiritual leader. But even if our wife isn't saved, even if our wife is not saved, our goal should still be to lead them to the Lord through our words and actions, always praying to her, towards salvation. Next week, um, next Sunday I should say, we're going to be addressing actually that part of the scripture in 1 Corinthians 7. Now being a dad, let's skip ahead now to Ephesians 6.4. Same area. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now what this really means is, it doesn't mean don't make them angry. That's not what Paul's saying. You saying. Know, because as a spiritual leader, you're going to make some very unpopular decisions that you're right. And you're gonna make your kid upset about it. No, you can't have a computer at seven. Well, it's not fair. Johnny has a computer. I'm not we're not talking Johnny, we're talking you. You're not gonna have a computer. <laughs> you know. They get angry. That's not what we're saying here. What Paul is addressing is again lording your authority over your child simply because you can. Okay? How many people have heard that great statement when they were kids? This is because I'm your father and I say so. And that's the end of it. Okay? That may work for the young ones because you really don't want to go into a long explanation because they could care less about the explanation. But when they get older, yeah, the kid does deserve an explanation. Yeah, you are dead. But you need to basically say this is why. And it doesn't matter if they agree with you or not. You're still giving them that opportunity, that peek into what's happening. Well, why should I do that? Jesus did it. When Jesus rebuked somebody, there was always a reason behind it. Even when he was busy chasing the guys out of the temple, what were his words in Matthew twenty-one thirteen. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and you have made it into a den of thieves. Yeah, he went in there, he turned the tables over, he took a whip and was chasing everybody out there, but he just didn't do it and didn't tell them why it was happening. He said, this is the, why I am doing this. Now keep in mind, guys, being the spiritual leader of the family is a full-time job, which again is why it is so important as a transformation to other forms of spiritual leadership. Never lose focus on the fact that we should want to be spiritual leaders, but that the Lord is the one that's going to place us there, and in his good time, and when he does place us there, he will use us to the limit. You've heard me say this before. Serving here at the church is my real job. My teaching job is my day job. That's how the Lord provides for my family. I work here full time, even though I spend a good portion of time at Clifton. That's the attitude we need to have. Being a husband and a dad is one of the hardest and at times most thankless jobs around, and so is the job of a pastor. However, both are vitally important for ministry. As a godly father, you want to bring up your children to eventually become godly men and women. As a pastor, you're trying to do that with your congregation. Oh, they may take a detour, and that detour may last some time. But the godly precepts and love that you gave them and the prayer that you continue to engage on their behalf will eventually bring them home. It may be a long road, but I am convinced it will happen. Likewise, spiritual leaders in the church are encouraging and raising up their own replacements among the next generation. God's going to be moving a person on. He's going to be moving me me on, Pastor Richard, whomever, either physically by placing them someplace else or taking them home. But someone needs to be on hand to take that baton and continue the work of God. Wherever we are called to lead and serve, and remember we cannot separate the two, We need to heed and understand Sanders' words when he says, If the world is to hear the church's voice today, leaders are needed who are authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial. Authoritative because people desire reliable leaders who know where they're going and are confident of getting there. Spiritual because without a strong relationship to God, even the most attractive and competent person cannot lead people to God. Sacrificial because this trait follows the model of Jesus who gave himself for the whole world and who calls on us to follow his steps. Guys, our world is dying spiritually. And the word has told us this is going to happen. This is just another sign of the end times. If we are to help bring one last revival before the Lord's returns, then we must assume the mantle of spiritual leadership at whatever level the Lord has placed us. Be that over our family, over part of a ministry, over an entire ministry, over a church, even over a group of churches as a missionary supervisor we must be willing to raise up the next generation of leaders to be just as dedicated excuse me just as dedicated and just as committed to the ministry as Jesus was and then we must be willing to move on when the spirit directs us i want to end with a story about a true spiritual leader though most people probably would not consider him as such and yet his impact went far beyond what most pastors would dream about And you probably have heard this story before, I've mentioned it, Pastor Richard has mentioned it, but it bears repeating. So it all started a number of years ago in a Baptist church in South London. The Sunday morning service was closing, and a man stood up in the back and raised his hand and said, Excuse me, Pastor, can I share a short testimony? pastor looked at his watch and said, You have three minutes. The man proceeded with his story. I just moved into this area. I I used to live in Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives and I was walking down George Street. Now, pause for a moment. To get you up to speed, George Street is one of the oldest streets in Sydney, Australia, actually dating back to the British colonial period. In fact, it's named after George III. Yes, the same George III we had so much trouble with in 1776. And over the years, George Street morphed into a major business and commercial center. So, okay, now we know what we're talking about. Let's continue. So he's visiting relatives. He's walking down George Street. A strange little man, little white-haired man, stepped out from a shop, put a pamphlet in my hand, and said, Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to go to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one had ever asked me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way home to London, this puzzled me. I called a friend, and thank God he was a Christian, and he led me to Christ. Well, people love testimonies like that. Everyone in that church applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship and kind of got passed into the wayside. Now, that same Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide, Australia the next week, and ten days later, in the middle of a three-day series of teachings, a woman came up to him for some counseling. He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ, and so she told him, I used to live in Sydney. And a couple of months back, I was visiting some friends in Sydney, doing some last-minute shopping down George Street. A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet, and said, Excuse me, man, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was disturbed by these words. When I got home to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me, so I sought out the pastor and he led me to Christ. So I am telling you, I am a Christian. Well, our London pastor is now very puzzled. Two, twice in two weeks, he has heard the same testimony. He didn't think much more. He flew to preach at the Mount Pleasant Church in Perth, Australia. When his teaching series was over, the senior elder of that church took him out for a meal. And the pastor asked the elder how he got saved. The elder said, I grew up in this church from the age of 15. Never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everyone else. Because of my business ability, I was placed into a a point of influence. But I was on a business trip to Sydney about three years ago, and I was walking down George Street when an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway offered me a religious pamphlet cheap junk and accosted me with a question excuse me sir are you saved if you die tonight are you going to heaven I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder but he wouldn't listen to me I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth I told my pastor thinking he would sympathize but he didn't he had been disturbed for years knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Christ and he was right my pastor then led me to Jesus just three years ago London past preacher flew home and was soon speaking at a pastor's convention in the Lake District of London, and he mentioned these three testimonies he had heard. At the close of the series, four elderly pastors came up and explained that they too had been saved between 25 and 30 years earlier through that same little man on George Street, offering them a pamphlet and asking them that exact same question. Following week, this pastor flew to a similar convention in the Caribbean for missionaries. He shared the same testimonies. At the close of his teaching, three missionaries came forward and said that they had also been saved between 15 and 25 years ago by that same little man. They were asked the exact same question on George Street in Sydney. Next, he stopped in Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at a U.S. Naval Chaplain's Convention. Here, for three days, he spoke to over 1,000 chaplains. After the chaplain general took him out for a meal, he asked this chaplain, How did he become a Christian? Well, it was miraculous. I was a raiding on a battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked at Sydney Harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I was blind drunk, got on the wrong bus, and got off in George Street. As I got off the bus, I thought I saw a ghost as this man jumped out in front of me, pushed a pamphlet into my hand, and said, "'Sailor, are you saved?' If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? The fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked sober, ran back to the ship, sought out the chaplain. He led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance, and now I am in charge of 1,000 chaplains who are bent on soul winning today. Six months later, that that London pastor flew to a conference for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote part of northeastern India. At the end, the head missionary took him to his humble little home for a simple meal. And the pastor asked him how he, as a Hindu, came to Christ. Well, I grew up in a very privileged position, the man said. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission, and I traveled the world. And I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and his blood covering my sin, because I would be very embarrassed if people found out what I was into. One period of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. I was walking I was doing some last minute shopping laden with toys and clothes for my children. I was walking down George Street when a courteous white-haired little man stepped out in front of me, offered me a pamphlet, and said, "Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven?" I thanked him very much, but I was very confused. I got back to my town, sought out our Hindu priest, and he couldn't help me at all, but he advised me that to satisfy my mind just just that, nothing more, that I should go and talk to the missionary in the mission home at the end of the road. That was fatal advice, because that day the missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism immediately and began to prepare for ministry. I lift the dip, left the diplomatic service, and here I am today, by God's grace, in charge of all these missionaries who have together led over 100,000 people to Christ. Well, eight months later... That London pastor was preaching in Sydney. He asked the local Baptist minister if he knew of a little elderly white-haired man who handed out tracts on George Street. He replied, Yes, I do. His name is Mr. Frank Jenner, though I don't think he does it anymore because he's so frail and elderly. Well, two nights later, they went to meet him in his little apartment. They knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail old man greeted them. He sat them down and made them tea. He was so frail and so afflicted with Parkinson's disease that he was slopping the tea into the saucer as his hand shook. The London preacher sat there and told him of all these accounts from the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks, and then he related his own testimony. I was a sailor on an Australian, Royal Australian warship. I was living a reprobate life. But at some point, 1937, I was in the middle of a crisis and I hit the wall. I didn't know where to turn to. One of my colleagues, to whom I had given literal hell for years, was there to help me. He led me to Jesus and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours. I was so grateful to God. I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength... I did that. Sometimes I was ill and I couldn't do it. But I made up for it the days I missed at other times. I wasn't paranoid about it. I had done this for over 40 years. And in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street where I saw hundreds of people a day. I got lots of rejections. But a lot of people courteously took the track. But in 40 years of doing this, I have never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. Guys, that is spiritual leadership. A sacrificial commitment to show gratitude and love for Jesus and to do that for 40 years and not hear of any results. Someone calculated that this simple, non-charismatic little man who was never a pastor, who probably never was even considered a spiritual leader by those who knew him, this little guy from Australia witnessed to nearly 147,000 people. However, to all those people who had shared with that Baptist pastor from London, Mr. Jenner was a spiritual leader. He was interested in their souls and not in his own glory. Now, goodness knows how many more have been arrested for Christ and were doing huge jobs out in the mission fields thanks to this unassuming spiritual guidance of one little man from Sydney, Australia. Mr. Jenner died two weeks after speaking with that London pastor. No one except for a little group of believers in Sydney knew about Mr. Jenner and his simple work for the kingdom of God. But you can imagine the welcome and red carpet treatment and the fanfare he received when he went home to glory. And the words from his Lord, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. That's what the Lord wants for us, guys. Whether you're Billy Graham or Frank Jenner or anybody in between, it all boils down to this. To serve when called and to lead when called and giving him all the glory, willing to suffer for the sake of objectives great enough to demand our wholehearted obedience. There are good people out here who hear me right now. You may not realize what God has in mind for you. To use spiritual leadership may not be an option at any level. Maybe you don't want to get married, maybe you think that it's over, God can't use you. Nah. God will be calling you. He may already be calling you. And it's not will be, it's not maybe calling you, he will be. That's a given, and you must be ready to answer whether or not you feel ready is not the point. When the Lord calls you, he will know you are ready. And really that's what this series of studies is all about. Prepare you for that call when it comes. Let's go ahead and close with prayer.